everybody. Um, I'm delighted to be here with you in the middle of New York Fashion Week, um, and particularly because we're talking about one of my favorite designers, Rebecca Minkoff. I'm suspecting most of you know Rebecca as well, and that's why you're here. So I'll keep this brief so that we can hear from the woman herself. Uh, Rebecca is a favorite among Glamour readers, and she has an incredible resume. At just 18 years old, she did the kind of ballsy thing that a lot of 18-year-olds talk about, but not many do. She moved to New York City to pursue her dream of being a designer. And in 2001, she designed a version of the I Love New York t-shirt as part of a five-piece capsule collection. It appeared on The Tonight Show and became an overnight sensation. Then in 2005, Rebecca designed her first handbag, uh, which she called the morning after bag. Love that name. Have to ask her exactly where that came from, um, AKA the MAB. Uh, it made her career take off as a handbag designer and inspired her vision for what would become her fashion company. And that was to be the downtown romantic, which is still what she considers herself today. She launched Ready to Wear in 2009, and today Rebecca Minkoff is a global lifestyle brand with a wide range of accessories, footwear, handbags, jewelry, wearable tech, and may I say, outerwear. The brand is distributed in over 900 stores worldwide with flagship stores in New York City, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, with Chicago slated to open this year. Her brand, she says, is focused on her ideal millennial girl. And I heard her say once that she thinks she's the only designer who is really the same age and gender as her customer, and that that gives her an edge. Um, but one of the most interesting, interesting things about Rebecca right now, this week, is that she is disrupting the fashion industry. And I don't just mean disrupting in that way that everybody says, oh, I'm disrupting this, I'm disrupting that. It's a buzzword. For her, it, it's an actual reality. On Saturday, Rebecca held her first ever, and in fact, the industry's true first ever, See It, Buy It fashion show, which meant that everything that came down the runway could actually be purchased by her customers. Uh, we'll talk more about why that's significant in a little bit. Um, she's been digitally savvy and innovative for years. She's been releasing behind-the-scenes Fashion Week content on social platforms like Snapchat and Instagram and the video app Keek and allowing her fans to have a hand in creating what her new collections will actually be by voting for them on social media. Her stores also feature this genius little bit of technology where instead of having to stick your head out the dressing room door and yell for a salesperson, you can just press the button and tell them that you need the pants in a larger size, please, as opposed to having to broadcast that for everybody to hear. Um, so she knows what she's doing. And recently her company was named to Fast Company's list of the top 10 most innovative companies in fashion and style. Rebecca lives right here in the city with her husband, um, director Gavin Bellore, and their son Luca and daughter Bowie. Welcome, Rebecca. I said I was going to keep that brief, but it was really hard because there's so much to say about you. Thank you for the mouthful. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. You know I'm a fan. Um, first of all, let's talk about this show on Saturday. And before we get to exactly what you did and how it went, maybe you can back up and talk a little bit about 
why is it actually a big deal to have a runway show where you can buy the things you see? I think for people outside the industry, that seems like, of course, that's how it should be. Correct. So just to give you guys some history, uh, when I moved here and my experience with uh, Fashion Week before social media is you went to a show <clears throat> if you were a buyer and editor and there was no social media, there were no cameras. The only cameras there were capturing that content for print magazines and for buyers to look at that season's show. So the whole calendar of when these shows were and why they were was to allow print to have the three months it needed to take the images and for buyers to place their buys and get it into department stores and allow the designer to have, you know, six months to buy it and ship it and get it into the stores. So it was built on that model and social media has disrupted everything because now images are everywhere right away. So that's how it was and why Fashion Week is, has been this model. So what made you start thinking, I got to change this? So we started thinking about this probably two years ago. We felt like the model was broken, that it was very frustrating uh, for you guys to see something and then not be able to get it until six to nine months later. And by the time you could get it from me, it had been already been copied by someone else cheaper and available earlier. So we really wanted to find a way, if you're frustrated, um, I'm frustrated. Um, I'm sick of the clothes if I see them six months later too because I've seen them on blogs, on Instagram, on everywhere you can imagine. So for us it was about saying, how do we not disrupt the current ecosystem for print media and for our stores so they can come in and buy and magazines can pull and the images can be in them but also give you something that you can buy now and wear now. So the concept was, to do an in-season show. So on Saturday, everything you saw was buyable, wearable, within now and 30 days from now. And in keeping with the normal calendar, buyers came in, they previewed my fall line, which will be seen to you guys in September. Again, when you open the pages of Glamour, it'll be fresh and exciting. You won't have seen it on everyone's Instagram. Um, and then you'll see it in a runway show it, you know, that same week, and it'll be in stores. So really hoping to shift the conversation so that everyone benefits and the consumer is not frustrated with the experience anymore. You just made it sound super easy. What's the, what's the hardest part about doing that? What are the challenges? I have some people in the audience who can attest to how not easy this was. Um, but the first time you change anything, I kept saying it was a Herculean effort, making sure that everything that was bought was in the show, uh, making sure the needs of all the consumers, that someone who'd never been to a show could even just know where to go. We had about a third of the room was our consumers. And, you know, how, did, how do you get them in? How do you get them out? How do you get them to shop? How do you make everything available on the website that day? Um, how do you live stream and make that video shoppable? One hiccup was um, we were planning on styling the show on a Thursday and my e-com said, if you want to make this shoppable, you have to have everything uploaded by Tuesday night. And I said, well, the stylist ha ha doesn't even arrive until Thursday. So just, just things that you wouldn't have thought of. You know, every, everything you could think wouldn't happen happened, but uh, we survived and we pulled it off. And um, I think our customer is really happy because she's, you know, purchased four times more than she normally would. So meaning this week, the results, the sales were four times higher in the wake of the show. That was just the day of the show. The sales were four times higher in one store. We have yet to calculate all the metrics for all of our partners and our e-commerce, but just the, you know, the flash that we got was four times that day. This is, of course, an industry-wide change. You know, since you announced that you were going to be doing this, Burberry has announced that it will be doing the same. Tom Ford, Tommy Hilfiger, 
um, opening ceremony. Uh, how does it, first of all, how does it feel to have everybody copying you, Rebecca? It feels great. Um, we, you know, my brother, who's my co-founder and I, we've always liked to be pioneers in this industry. And uh, we're not afraid to stick our necks out and try something. I think it was us and Taco Bell on Snapchat two years ago. Um, and now it's, you know, a phenomenon. So to, to be able to try these things and be nimble um, and take these risks is something that's in our DNA, I guess, um, but it's been proven successful. But will it actually make it easier in some way if lots of companies start doing this all together? I mean, it, it, in some ways, having company is probably a good thing here, right? Definitely. We want everyone to change because I think you have to speak to who you guys are. We have to speak to our consumer who wants to see things and buy them right away and not wait six months. So I think uh, companies would be silly not to follow. Is there anything that you would do or will do differently next season yes. other than having the stylist come on a Tuesday? I'm going to have a stylist come in August when there's nothing going on and we're going to sit on a roof and style the show very casually and it won't be so stressful, you know, two days before the show worrying about if everything that we said was loaded into the live stream for the camera and... There'll be some other things too, yeah. Okay, let's go back to your own career trajectory. Can you talk to us about the morning after bag and how okay. it came to be? So uh, when I decided to move to New York and pursue fashion, it was originally through the lines of an apparel company, which I started, and I did that for about four years. And my initial idea was just to add one bag to the, access the apparel collection. Um, and I wanted a bag that would feel timeless, that was affordable. And at the time, I know this, make, this dates me, but um, there wasn't an affordable bag. It was just luxury or stuff you could buy on the street. And so to have a $500 price point was a new emerging price point. That price point now today is $195. But um, I wanted something that was timeless and classic. And everyone back then was sick of these it bags or these overly logoed bags. So to create something that was the antithesis of that. Um, so I designed the, the bag. It wasn't called the morning after bag yet. But I knew it needed a hook, and I knew that I wanted to be able to tell a story because a woman has many experiences, and her bag is usually with her for these moments of firsts. Uh, your first date, your first kiss, your first love, uh, your first affair. <laughs> so um, at the time, being a 25-year-old in New York City, I had a certain lifestyle I aspired to achieve, although I didn't make much headway in that direction. And I thought, wow, it'd be so romantic to meet a guy and stay out all night and, you know, have the morning after. So that was the birth of that name. Um, that's the PG-13 version. <laughs> I don't think we have too many children in the audience. You're, you're okay. Um, and at the time, again, there was no social media and Daily Candy, which was a very powerful platform at the time, uh, wrote about it. Um, the title was Catwalk of Shame. And from there, it was this wild um, excitement around a bag that was affordable, cool, uh, was with the trends, but you could, you could have it long after and it, and it wouldn't make you feel dated. So what did that teach you about what your business could be and how it could grow? I think it showed me at the time that if you hit on the right product at the right time, speaking to the right customer, that there's a magic in that. And I knew that if I focused on that bag, and just went with that and told that story and then expanded her that we could have a, a large business. So we decided, I say we, my brother and I, decided to shut down the clothing, focus on the bags, make a really strong business, and from there, slowly uh, make a lifestyle brand. So we launched shoes, we relaunched the clothing, and then added jewelry, belts, cold weather. 
And, and when you relaunched Ready to Wear, how did you approach it differently than the first time around? The first time around, I approached it differently. Well, I was making almost 90% of the clothing. So the second time around, I did not do that because there's no scalability if I'm sewing everything myself. <laughs> um, but really just getting into my consumer's mindset, getting into what does she want? What is, where, do, where does my clothing and my vision fit her? You know, I, Maybe it's not for going to work, but man, I'm going to dress you for weekends, for brunch, for going out with your friends and for after working out. And if I can cover you in that lifestyle, um, then those are the things that you're going to want to have that extra little jacket for or your suede trench for your fabulous night out um, or your fun leopard boots. So just really getting into the mindset of this girl and where she goes and what she wants to dress for. Um, you've launched retail stores, I think it's about a year now? Yeah, right? a little over a year. Um, and one of the things that you said from the beginning was really important to you is that they had this technology built into them and it wasn't going to be something layered on after. So from the point of view of somebody here, if they walk down the street and into your store, as hopefully they all will after this, what will they find? What is the technology? So we really wanted to take our customers' pain points and isolate those of the things that annoy her when she's shopping in a brick-and-mortar experience. So some things like lighting. You know, it's, if, if the lighting in the room is terrible, you're going to have a terrible experience. So we now offer you four types of lighting, morning, afternoon, evening, and night. So you can really see if you're buying that sequin dress for a night out that you can see how you're going to look. Um, or if you're coming home the next morning, what are you going to look like? Um, Do you I, have special morning after light? <laughs> morning after light. <laughs> I don't want that light. <laughs> Neither do I. Uh, but my customer does. Um, other, other things like who hates, you know, looking out half naked for the associate to help you or having to get dressed. And if it's the wintertime, get all your layers back on to go get that size. So having a button that you can say, get me this size. Um, we also wanted to feel like I was in the dressing room with you. So we pull in content from our e-commerce site of other items you might like based on what you picked. And it's saying, you know, it's me saying, you like this jacket? Well, here's the skirt that goes with it, or here's the bag you should wear. Um, and so the girl really feels like it's not an associate selling her something just so that they can make a commission, but it's Rebecca's in the room with you, and this is how I would style it. So if you need that help and that advice, we're going to give that to you. Um, as well. What are, what are the features that people use most? Uh, they order a lot of champagne. Is that a right? A lot of champagne, yes. You mean like back to the room? Back we have to the it available room? in the room and on the touch screen when you walk in. So we, we do, uh, yes, champagne is... Which champ is the category <laughs> of clothing where they drink the most when they're trying it on? Swimsuits? <laughs> if we had swimsuit, yes. But uh, <laughs> yes, definitely. But I think uh, most women will try on our jackets a lot, our outerwear, and um, because it's a dressing room, it's mostly clothing that they bring in there. Mm -hmm. But um, all categories uh, do pretty well. And, and our conversion is three times what we anticipated it because they get it in the room. They can see how it's styled. Um, they can call a size very easily. They can check out. eBay built this with us. I think the lead engineer is in the room. I don't know if he's hiding, if Healy's here. Oh, there he is. He's waving. You can't see him. Good so ears, he, Healy. Healy Cipher uh, now has an incredible company called Oak Labs. Um, but he he did this. He built this with us. So so a question for you and and uh, also for him, I suppose. Why do you think more designers and more fashion brands don't do this? I mean, it's when you're describing it, it seems very clearly like the kind of thing that would make a shopping experience more enjoyable for the average woman and probably man. Yeah. Why? What are the obstacles? Why isn't this the kind of thing we see everywhere? I think I think the single biggest obstacle is that it 
you know, we were fortunate that we were building our stores from the ground up. So we could put all this technology into it from the beginning, all the wires, all the, all the, uh, the technology stack could be built from the ground up. And I think, you know, if a store has 150 doors, the thought of retrofitting every fitting room is probably overwhelming. Um, but I think it will accelerate to a place where, you know, before, you know, you had your iPod, right? And now look, everyone has it on their phone. So I think that as technology and, and things like this get cheaper, you know, a DVD player costs $50 now, guys. You know, when it was released, it was 500 So I think as this gets cheaper mm -hmm. and more used, and it'll be easier for stores to confront, you know, retrofits. Were there any bits of technology that you considered building into the stores or using in-store that in the end you decided were not worth it or, you know, just there's things that you opted against? We opted against having any type of camera in the dressing room because we never wanted the consumer to feel like there was a potential for them to be watched or to a picture taken of them that maybe they didn't want. So anything that we add, because we plan to add updates, if they are you know, a selfie mirror or something like that, anything camera related will be outside of the room. That's very smart. Uh, I heard, and you can tell me if it's true, that the screens in the fitting rooms tripled your sales. Is that... They right. did, yes. So for our ready-to-wear business, we had planned it in line with what we had been selling in our department stores and our other specialty stores. Um, and then we started selling uh, three times the clothing that we ever thought we would sell because you can bring it into this room and it makes shopping easy. You call a size if you need it. You see actually what's available to you inventory-wise with uh, within the store. So there's no guessing games. If the associate says it's not here, she's not lying to you because she doesn't want to go downstairs. Um, and, <laughs> and, I, and I think... I always suspect that. Well, now you know. If it says size 8, it's really in the store. If it's crossed out, you know it's not. And we also made it seamless with our app so that if you were like, cool, I want to try these things on, um, but I don't want to carry the bags home, then you just log into our app. It connects the session to your phone, and you can just buy it and have it sent to your house. So it really becomes a seamless experience where all those annoying points where you might lose a customer, um, she doesn't have that frustration. Mm -hmm. um, I referenced before that you talk to your customer on social media a lot and that you've actually said that in some ways that influences how you design. How does it influence your design? A really great example is we saw in one of our reports that 45 jackets had been taken into the room and 45 jackets had not been purchased. So we immediately knew there's a fit issue. What is the problem with this jacket? Um, but we were able to pull that data and almost look at you know their shopping cart abandonment online and now we could see fitting room abandonment. So we were able to get into the data of what she's trying on, why, what she's pairing together in different combinations. Again, we don't know who you are, we just know that someone is going in there. And I think that allowed us to really go, wow, OK, I need to check the fit. Let me, let me call it in from production and then fix it for the go forward. Oh, fascinating. Um, you talk a lot about being a designer for millennials and that you're part of that generation. Uh, obviously, one of the ways in which that is different from designing for an older customer is the fact that technology is so important. What, what are some of the other things to you that are hallmarks of designing for a millennial customer? I think these days um, our consumer or, you know, as a millennial speaking to millennials, um, you know, the loyalty to a brand is not about just the glossy advertising images that are put out there. It's finding a connection with the person, either the face of the brand or the person behind the brand, and almost buying into that lifestyle and buying into that character that is created. Or when you think of a brand, what does that make you feel versus 
oh, that's really expensive and it's pretty, so I want to have it. So I think the whole mindset of how she's thinking, um, and she's, you know, a lot of our customers are buying experiences over stuff. So if you're going to give her something, it has to have great value. It has to be well-made for the value that it is and almost a surprise. So you turn over the sticker and you're like, wow, I actually can't afford that and I can have my vacation. Um, so I think those are the things she's thinking about. Um, you know, you talked a lot also about that daily conversation on social media. I mean, you gave before the example of learning from the, the fitting room abandonment, which is a great phrase. Are there moments when your customer will be talking to you on social media, either you know tweeting you or, or posting in your comments on Instagram, and it actually changes how you think when you go into work that day? 100%. We get comments all the time, and then um, I read most of them. I also, my brother reads definitely all of them. Um, Good so, man. <laughs> so if a customer is being uh, too slow to be responded to, I immediately will say, hey, what's up? This person's upset, and she wrote me on Instagram and said, why are, why are you posting a picture about a football when you should be answering my, my, uh, my tracking number? And those are real and valid concerns, and we have to listen to them. Um, so, but we also ask her stuff to be part of the design conversation, which I think she likes. So, you know, what color jeans should we do this season? Let's take a vote. Or, um, we partnered with Polyvore to create a set and from that I, we made a bag from it. So asking her for her opinion along the way, um, has always been something we did from the very beginning. And I think she appreciates that dialogue that I'm listening. In, in what way? And maybe this doesn't matter to you. Does this, does it run counter to the idea that a designer is an artist and that the design somehow springs full blown from the designer's brain and that anything that that you know mucks up with that is just not interesting or not real design? So we were warned when we started talking to our consumer that it was dirty and we had like interventions from some of our. Uh, partners saying it's dirty, you are supposed to be in an ivory tower, you are better than her, you don't need to talk to her. Interventions and from some of your partners. <laughs> so what kind of partners? <laughs> Just some stores at the time uh, that couldn't see the future. Um, and I think that we were like, why? That's the smartest thing we could do. It is not beneath us to talk to our, our customer. You know, If I can have this dialogue with you and you can help inform me and make me smarter, you know, I'll always design within the guardrails of the brand, but if you can help me with a color or a stud or a hardware color or fringe on a bucket bag, you know, why not? Uh, I neglected to mention before during your extensive biography that you're also launching a YouTube channel tomorrow. Yes, we are launching RMTV. Uh, it's actually launching on Glamour. So you can, you can see a sneak preview on Glamour.com, but then go to YouTube. You can, and it's going to be very fun. It's meant to be not serious, not overly produced. Uh, some of the franchises uh, that we're going to have is My Life Hacks, like what do you do if you ate too much, but you have to wear your pants, and you have a rubber band. How do you get, you know, how do you get out of that situation? Can you answer that question right now? <laughs> yeah, you just loop, you loop it through the hook, and you t uh, twirl it around the button, and it gives you like an extra three inches if you need it. I think any woman in the audience who's had a baby knows that trick, right? <laughs> That's right. My, my sister-in-law actually taught it to me. She's like, oh, you don't want to buy maternity jeans. This is what you do. Um, so it's meant to have fun. It's also me interviewing women I admire um, who are doing incredible things in the back of an Uber. We're calling it Uberview. Um, so it's just fun slices. Um, you know, behind the scenes, ask me anything questions. Um, so hopefully you guys log on tomorrow. Very cool. Um, 
Talk a little bit about the Athleisure collection last fall that you launched and whether you see that continuing. And maybe you can define that for those in the audience who might not know. So athleisure is this uh, trend that might not be going away of uh, people have become, again, tapping into experiences, going to a soul cycle or a Y7 yoga class. Um, and it's how they're dressing, you know, from that moment to brunch to the rest of their day and how the, the rise of this fitness interest has made it so that a woman wants to look chic before, during and after. And so wearing more casual clothing or combining something like this suede trench maybe with, you know, your yoga clothes on underneath. Um, so we decided in order to speak to our girl who is doing those activities to launch an athleisure, athleisure collection. Um, and we're now in our second season and the response has been great. And we're seeing that continue that, you know, if you want a little bit of more casualness in your life, but you want it from Rebecca Minkoff that we offer that to you. Um, at Glamour, as I think you know, we're, we're supporting, well, we love women designers and we love powerful women. So this particular fashion week, we're supporting women designers. We had a feature in the magazine about it and I am personally wearing all female designers throughout all fashion week. Um, so on that topic of what it's like to be a woman in the historically male-dominated, although not really currently male-dominated fashion industry, what do you, how would you categorize the state of women in fashion right now? Is it a tough business to be in, more tough for women than for men, or is that not true anymore? I think that we're one of the rare uh, segments that has more women than men. You know, if you look at my office, it's probably 10 poor guys and a lot of women. Um, but I know that it's an issue outside of fashion, um, that it's not equally represented or equal benefits. And so within our industry, the thing that I say is the women are taking each other down, and that's a whole other issue, right, of women competing with women and not helping each other, and that's been a frustration. How so? I think uh, you see, uh, you know, what's that movie with Anne Hathaway? The September issue? The what? Devil Wears yes, Prada. The Devil Wears Prada, thank you. So. I, I, she helped her in the end. <laughs> I think that I see and hear, and I try to allow it not in my company, this, this, this competition that isn't about, hey, let's have a healthy competition. It's like, I'm going to take you down, or I'm going to make sure you're lynched. And that, to me, is what I see that women are doing to each other that I don't like. And so I've wanted to change that within our field and then on the outside make it so that if a woman has, you know, works in an unequal situation that she can have a voice and be stronger. How do you bond with other women designers? Like, do you, do you have friendships? Do you support each other? How does that work? I think there's a bunch of us that support each other. And what I've been trying to do is have these dinners uh, where I just, you know, have the room be full of incredible female entrepreneurs and just have great conversations. And so we've had about five of them at this point. And it's really about let's change the conversation so that we're all helping each other. It's not I'm a better designer than you or I'm going to be more successful than you. But really, you know what, we're all better if we're all lifting each other up. You've talked a few times uh, just in the last half hour about working with your brother. What's the best part of that and what's the most challenging part of that? So the best part of it is that I know he has my back all the time and I know that his intentions and my intentions are aligned and that we want to build the best, greatest company we can and I never have to worry about is he in it 100%. Um, if we ever have a fight that's really big, we can go to my parents and they can mediate for us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Has that happened? That's happened once, yes. Over what, Would you, could you say? Oh, man, it was a while ago. We couldn't agree on 
I don't know, the way about launching something and it turned, it just spiraled out of control and the brother-sister dynamic. And so my dad was like, you know, Ori and Rebecca, I love you both very much and you're both my children. Now go to your room. <laughs> now go to your room, yeah, exactly. Um, and then I would say, you know, if there is a worst part, you know, we are brother and sister. Who, who has a sibling and doesn't fight with them? Raise your hand. Okay, good. Oh, there's one person. You're perfect. Um, you're hired. <laughs> so brothers and sisters or sisters and sisters fight. So sometimes that, you know, you can get into a fight. But at the end of the day, we make up and we're a close-knit family. So um, if that's the worst of it, I'll deal with that. Can you offer any advice to, I'm sure there are a few of you out there in the audience, people in the audience who might want to become fashion designers? Any do's and don'ts? Yes, I would say get as many internships as you can. I would say don't even worry about the department. When I was an intern, my first day, I was in the shipping department, but I was a damn good shipper. Uh, the next day, I was sent to reorganize a supply closet, and that was a perfect supply closet. So I took each challenge with, oh, I didn't come here to do this. I had those thoughts, but I didn't act that way. Um, but I took each one really seriously and showed that I was better than the rest, and, and then they gave me opportunity from that. So I'd say work your butt off and use your connections. There's six degrees of separation. I truly believe that between you and someone who can help you. So what do you look for when you're hiring people? What do you look for in a job interview? The first thing I look for is a firm handshake. I hate like a limp or a wet handshake. Those are like, ugh, I can't hire a limp or a wet handshake. <laughs> um, after that, I usually like to make sure that they have understood the brand enough that they're not going to, that they dress the part. So I don't want to interview someone that's in a three-piece suit um, that's very buttoned up in corporate because that's not our culture. So I really want them to have understood the brand. Um, they don't have to dress like me by any chance, but they have to be young and cool and stylish. Um, not, they don't have to be young. I take that back. They don't have to be young. <laughs> young in spirit. Young at heart. <laughs> yes. Um, and then I look someone with a hunger in their eye who's really looking to work hard. Um, it is not easy. I say, you know, it's my PR director does a good job if she makes this look glamorous all the time. So someone who knows what's behind that and really knows about the intense hard work and effort it takes to get here and is willing to do that. So if I'm interviewing you a year from now, right here, um, how will you define success at the end of the next year? Wow. Success would be our fourth store in Chicago, open and doing well. Um, it would be our YouTube channel, which we really feel is another way of us speaking to our consumer, having massive viewership. Um, and I think, ju I think just solidifying our place that this disruption with our fashion show has worked, that the consumer is adopting it, that sh it's shifting behavior, and hopefully changing a system. Oh, that's all. Just changing the system. Just complete world revolution. That's all she wants. Um, I want to open this up to questions from the audience, but before I do, if we could just do a quick rapid-fire round. Um, just a few questions. What's the first thing you read in the morning? Um, I've been trying to get away from reading my emails in the morning and uh, reading like a magazine. And, and How's get that going? <laughs> it was working for a while, not this last week. This week was all about reading emails at four in the morning. But, um, or also I've done, you know, everything's in Flipboard and I, I like to read some headlines and get a start of my day so that um, it's not just about diving right into work that I can learn what's going on in the world. What fashion trend do you love to hate? What's your ultimate glamour don't? I hate it when girls wear platforms so high that they, they either look like they might break an ankle or they stumble or they have to hold on to their partner for stability. That's what I really hate. 
<laughs> Favorite emoji or bitmoji? Um, it's been a glass of wine with like an expl that exploding cone with the confetti lately. <laughs> uh, fill in the blank. Blank is always in my handbag. I'm a big believer in chapstick. I know it's terrible, but it really keeps. Wait, why is it terrible? Because it's not natural. Oh and, right, it you is know, terrible. Probably Sorry. has petroleum in it. <laughs> I knew that. I swear. <laughs> But it keeps my lips soft, so there you go. Favorite social media platform? Because you're on them all. I'm on them all. Instagram. I think uh, that's where my girl is. Um, she's on other platforms, too. Snapchat, too, for us is really fun. So you mentioned that it was you and Taco Bell in the early days of Snapchat. You were there early. What's the next thing? Like, what's the thing that you're going to be first on or the thing that you feel like you're dabbling in that not everybody has caught up to yet? We're going to start dabbling in peach. And mm -hmm. that's about as much as I know about it, but we're going to start exploring that. As gonna... How do you find people on Peach? I got on Peach and I was very confused. I'm still working that out. Okay. <laughs> if someone wants to do a Peach tutorial afterward, we'd be game. Um, questions from the audience. Does anyone have a question for Rebecca? I'm curious about, uh, you, you already asked about uh, hiring employees and how you get employees, but you also have the, all these collaborators and services like Snapchat and things like that that you're kind of first on and you get in there. How do you assess which ones are the awesome ones to go with? Like you must have a sort of internal way of figuring out which ones are gonna be amazing and which ones are kind of gonna fizzle out and not be worth your time. I'm just curious what your process is for that. So sometimes we're right on and we look for engagement as far as the metrics for success. But when, when it was us and Taco Bell on Snapchat, we were like, oh man, that was fun, but no one's really using this platform. And it's been two years and then now it's a phenomenon. So, so you know, sometimes we're a little too early or, you know, we, we did um, behind the scenes with Keek, and that was fun, but it, you didn't feel this momentum and this engagement that our, that our actual customer was playing on that platform in a big way. So we want to wait and give it some time and never go away from the platform. But if we don't see, you know, a heat or an interest from our girl, then, you know, we might not make it part of, like, our, our top seven. Hi, my name is Anthony. Hi. Um, I want to ask, my first question is, what was your inspiration for the last collection that you showed on Saturday? So the original inspiration that I showed in September, which was also spring, um, came from Marianne Faithful. Um, I really admired her as a female musician, breaking ground when she did, and I thought her style was incredible. Uh, so that was the aesthetic lens of it, but you know, the real inspiration for re-showing it again was my consumer and giving her what she wanted when she wanted it, which is now. And just to piggyback off of that question, what would you say is the one Rebecca Minkoff staple that I would like your collections have? Like, what is that one element that it, the collection needs in order to remain Minkoff? A great leather or suede jacket. <laughs> I mean, as hello. we're wearing. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Um, at what point in your, um, I guess, career did you realize that technology was the way to go? I mean, you have all these high-tech things in your stores, which are awesome. You have the Apple Watch bands, you have all this stuff. Where did you get that idea to that was the direction you wanted to go into? I think what sets us apart from other brands who maybe came to it later and said, wow, we need a plan, we need to figure this out, it grew up with me. So as I launched my company in 2005 and um, Facebook and Twitter started, and blogs were starting. I think it just was something that was native to me, that I was watching this happen and unfold in real time, and it felt like 
I'm interested in this, my consumer's interested in this, and this is the language and how she wants to get her data. So it was an evolution rather than a, oh, I ignored this and now it's too late and now I gotta, I have to have a technology and social media plan. It's, it's more of just this natural evolution. Rebecca, nice to meet you. Hi. Throughout the course of your career, you came from San Diego to New York City and you worked with other artists directly, models, photographers, etc. How important has it been with your relationships with good photographers in, in regards to shooting your designs and your current success? I mean, I think image and the image you're portraying is everything. And in the beginning, you know, you don't have a lot of money to throw at a photographer. And sometimes you can work a deal or get a favor or do things for trade. So I think it's unbelievably important because as much as I want to communicate what I want to see, it's who you hire as the photographer that can make that vision happen. Um, and before um, our VP of editorial started, I was doing the photo shoots by myself with someone else and get, not giving them the direction that I wanted to achieve that effect. And then she, you know, she started and the way our images and our whole site looks, the look and feel of it is completely different than before when she started because she, she knows how to pick that photographer that's going to understand what the vision is. What you're doing is really fantastic. You have been really championing this sort of concept of giving your consumer what she's interested in now. Um, you, you were the first. And so I think probably everyone in this room is well aware of that. And so with the idea of giving it to your consumer very quickly and putting an emphasis on consumerism, how do you still balance the idea of artistry and design and quality um, with this new concept? Because I think still that's what your consumer is interested in. And so how do you give them this sort of higher end, more luxurious product and still give it to them quickly. So what's great about the way that we've uh, done this is the, the normal time when a buyer would come in to buy this collection is staying the same. So the amount of time it takes us to make things is still giving us the time for quality and production. So I have um, buyers in last week to buy fall of 2016, which is what everyone's showing now. No one has seen it. There's a little snippet of it on style.com or on vogueronway.com. And then it'll be, that'll, that's what will be in our show in September. So now I have from now to September to make all the goods, photograph them, and still have the same calendar. And then add to what I'm doing because in August I might see a trend that is, you know, suddenly occurred and I can actually put that into the collection. So I'm still in real time giving her what she wants and I can utilize New York City factories or factories in LA to do quick turn things like, oh, suddenly I might want, you know, a leather jacket with patchwork that just came to me and it's a big trend. I can put it into the collection and give that to her as well. So with your consumer, I know she's really happy that she can buy these things very quickly, but how, how do you tell her that it's not just about selling her that you're still offering all of this artistry and this self-expression through your designs, that, you're, that although you want to make it available to her, that you're not just trying to sell it to her. I think she'll see that because we capture all the footage of what goes into this. And I think you'll see, whether it's on our Instagram or our blog, that nothing in the quality has been taken out of this process because that part of it hasn't changed at all. Thank you. Yeah.
So your brand started off as apparel, and it's obviously become so much bigger than it was when you first started off. And I was wondering if you are going to incorporate something like swimwear or, say, like makeup into your brand anytime soon. Is that a vision you see happening? It's something we see happening, um, but probably not in the next couple of years. Swimwear is something we'll definitely probably have before makeup and skincare. Um, we're definitely interested in it, but we just want to make sure that you know the groundwork is laid uh, that is firmly entrenched and our stores are doing well so that if we do launch future product that it has a really healthy base to live on. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I was wondering as a woman designer, who are some of your, some of the women that you look up to in your life? So I read Chanel's uh, biography, Coco Chanel's, and what fascinated me is at the time what she did as a woman to be transformative in her industry and the fact that there were very few female designers or how she launched her perfume. You know, she launched it in her dressing room. She would spray it in the dressing room. People would smell it and then want to buy it. And just, you know, that seems like, okay, whatever. But back then, there is no technology. It's 1910 or whatever the year is, right? Um, and the fact that she had to hustle as a woman in a very different way to get to where she got to. Um, so I think she's fantastic as a designer just for what she did in her work, in her time. Hi, my name's Haley. Hi. Um, so you were saying how that you're one of the designers who you think, you know, you are a millennial selling to millennials. As you grow, are you going to sell to your growing customer or do you always want to target those next generation? Such a good question. That Thank is a you. Great question. So my let's say our core right is 18 to 35 and she's going to grow up and she's going to experience all the firsts in her life. So it's going to be really important for me to talk to her and also talk to the next Gen, Gen Z. Um, so, you know, I'll grow with her and then I'll make sure that I have a lot of even younger people working for me, helping me <laughs> tune into the, because it's another mindset. It's a different mindset. So helping me tune into who she is so that we're constantly not abandoning our original girl, but then talking to the next one to come. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs>